Welcome to eBible Fellowship's Sunday Bible Study. For broadcast times in your area of these studies, visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com. And now it's time to begin our Sunday study with your speaker, Chris McCann. Good afternoon and welcome to eBible Fellowship's Sunday Afternoon Bible Study. Today we're going to begin a new study in the Psalms and we're going to be looking at Psalm 9. And Lord willing, we'll try to go through this whole psalm in the coming weeks. Let me just read uh, some of the verses that are found in this psalm. For instance, in verse 4, it says, For thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou saddest in the throne, judging right. So there God is seated upon his throne judging. And it says in uh, verse 7, But Jehovah shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. Verse 8, And he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. So we see in those verses a strong focus on God seated for judgment and judging the world. And then notice in uh, verse 9, Jehovah also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And they, in verse 10, and they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, Jehovah, has not forsaken them that seek thee. And the context of God judging the world, all of a sudden the Lord speaks of being a refuge for his people. And now we can understand why that is, because we've seen this numerous times in other places in the Bible, that it it is God's plan and has always been God's plan to leave his people in the world during the time of the final judgment of mankind, and God is a refuge for them during that time. Well, uh, let's look at some other verses. In verse 12, when he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth them. He forgetteth not the cry of the humble. And this relates to the cry of the souls under the altar in Revelation chapter 6. How long, uh, holy and true, before you avenge our blood of them that dwell upon the earth? Or look at uh, verse 15. The heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made. In the net which they hid is their own foot taken. And we know the Bible identifies this period of time as a time when uh, the world has been brought into a pit, taken in a snare. In verse 16, Jehovah is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Verse 17 says, The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. And verse 18, for the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. And again, God is alternating. He's uh, 
speaking of the judgment on the wicked, they're turned into hell and immediately following, yet uh, the needy, which would be the elect, are not always forgotten. It's as though God is offering encouragement to his people because he knows the end from the beginning. He has written the Bible knowing full well that these scriptures, as well as other passages, will have a time of application, knowing full well there will come those days after that tribulation when God is judging the world and the elect are at first in confusion and troubled and what is going on. Um, we, we thought we would be delivered at the beginning of Judgment Day, but it's not the case. Here we are still uh, alive and remaining on the earth during the time of the outpouring of the wrath of God. And, and so it's very important. It's extremely important for God to speak directly to his people and to tell them and remind us, look, the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. And what is our expectation? It is to uh, be raptured, to be resurrected, to leave this sin-cursed earth, to receive our new resurrected bodies, and to be lifted up into the kingdom of heaven. So God is reminding us. And verse 19, Arise, O Jehovah, let not man prevail. Let the heathen be judged in thy sight. And, and notice the reference to not letting man prevail, but, but rather they will be judged. Put them in fear, O Jehovah, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. And, and that's the last verse of this psalm in verse 20. So you can see that in this short psalm of only 20 verses, God is um, just giving us tremendous amounts of information concerning the final judgment of the world and the uh, comforting scriptures for his people that are appearing before that judgment seat or being made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ. Well, I just wanted to go through that quickly so we can see the reason for turning to this particular psalm at this time when time is so short and in, in all likelihood we we only have a few months left before October 7th, 2015 and our expectation, our understanding from the Bible is that is the date that the Bible presents all kinds of biblical evidence for which will be the end of the world. It will be the completion of God's judgment. It will be the last day of tabernacles, and therefore uh, a very likely date for God to raise up his people at the last day, the Bible says. And this psalm is related to all those things, and and so we're uh, going to begin a study in it. All right, let's go to the inscription. 
And keep in mind that when we read the inscriptions of the Psalms, it's the Word of God. These are not added by the Bible publisher or anything like that. It is God's Word, and they have as much authority as any other Word of God. So it says in Psalm 9 in the inscription, To the chief musician upon Muthleben, a psalm of David. And we've looked at this before. We've spoken of this before. Many of the psalms are addressed to the chief musician. We don't have to go far. Go back to Psalm 8. To the chief musician upon Giddeth, a psalm of David. Or, um, I'm just turning the page, Psalm 4. To the chief musician on Neganoth, Psalm 5. To the chief musician upon Nehileth, Psalm 6, to the chief musician. And uh, actually, 54 times the references made to the chief musician out of 150 psalms. So more than one-third of the psalms are addressed to the chief musician. Now, of course, historically, it would make sense since these are songs you you write to the chief musician. The chief musician will play the music and as the people sing the psalm. But um, this is the Bible. And in the Bible, God likens the gospel to music, to song, to singing. And we won't go over that, but it can be seen in many places in First Chronicles. Uh, I think it's in chapter 25. God uh, speaks of prophesying upon the harp. And and musical instruments are related to playing music, but spiritually uh, declaring the gospel. And who is the chief musician? If, if musical instruments and singing relates to the gospel, then the chief musician is God himself. And, and that's why these, um, psalms are addressed to him, to God, basically is what it's saying, to the chief musician upon Muthleben, a psalm of David. Now, what is Muthleben? Well, we discover when we look up these two Hebrew words, Muth is in the Hebrew and Strong's Concordance, number 4192, and it means death. It means death. It's only found one other place in Psalm 48, in uh, verse 14. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death, or unto muth. Uh, that's the same Hebrew word. It's also um, this word, 4192, is related to other Strong's words that are likewise translated as death. So that's what it means to the chief musician upon death. Well, that that that's kind of unusual. And then Laban. Laban is a Hebrew word that means son. You can see Ben there. The, the last part of Laban, B-E-N, and Ben in the Hebrew means son, and 
really, uh, this is a word with a preposition in front of it. It means to. It, it, the Hebrew preposition is lamed, the letter lamed, or we would say the letter L, that's placed or attached to the word ben, and so it means to the sun, to the sun, or for the sun. And, uh, and that helps us to understand, um, what is being said here. It, it literally reads, or it should read, to die for the sun, to die for the sun, to the chief musician, um, upon to die for the sun, or uh, to the chief musician to die for the sun. And, uh, when we think about that, we know that the sun would have to be a reference to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of God's people are called upon to take up our cross and follow him. And if we take up our cross, well, that means um, it's language indicating we're to die. We're to die for him. We're to give up our life for the Son. That's what God calls all of his people to do, mortify your members which are upon the earth. We read in Colossians. And what is to mortify? Put to death your members. We're, we're to, um, give up our very life. We read in Romans chapter 12 in verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, a sacrifice was to be killed. You were to offer a sacrifice. And and the priest would kill the animal. And But God, of course, doesn't want us to kill ourselves physically. He wants us to put to death the flesh, to crucify our members. He wants us to live for Christ and and to crucify the world uh, that's what god would have us to do which he goes on to say is uh, wholly acceptable unto god which is your reasonable service well in psalm 9 to the chief musician uh for death to the son for death to the son or muthleben it is appropriate for this psalm, that God would have this kind of inscription because, remember in John 21, after the great catch of fish, after the Lord asked Peter three times, Lovest thou me? And Peter says, Yea, Lord, thou knowest I love thee. And three times Jesus responds, Feed my sheep. And then following that, back and forth, God speaks of the cross. Uh, it says in in John 21, verse 18, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death 
he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. So, with both the reference to death, which is to glorify God, and and the command, follow me, that's what Jesus would say when speaking of taking up your cross, and follow me. And to take the cross is to die. And so this is God's way of telling his elect people that we are to die for the Son, not to die physically, but to offer up our bodies a living sacrifice at the time after the great tribulation, after the great multitude has been saved, while we're commanded to feed God's sheep. We are to, in in that time especially, this time, our present day especially, this command is for all of us, We are to die for the Son, because, in all likelihood, this is the last time. There is no more epochs or eras or periods or times and seasons following. This is it. And if you, and if I, and if anyone who says they profess to be a child of God has not yet has not up to this point really or earnestly or sincerely lived for the Son or died for the Son. They have not yet crucified themselves on a daily basis. They have not yet mortified their members. They have not yet um, suppressed or, or put down the flesh but they continue to serve sin and their own lust and desires and their own evil, wicked ways rather than the way of God as he lays out in his word, the Bible, then when will that individual ever do what God has said in his word? And when will that person ever take up their cross? And the answer is, well, they never will. They never will. They'll live a life of half-heartedness. They'll live a life where uh, they they always held back as Ananias and his uh, Sapphira did in Acts chapter 5. They kept back part of the price. Uh, here you are, Lord. Uh, here's my offering to you. Here's my sacrifice of myself. But uh, please... Don't expect it to be an entire offering or a complete offering or a whole offering. It's a partial offering. That's good enough, isn't it, Lord? Well, that's good enough for churches that are filled with the unsaved. But when it comes to the true children of God, no, no, God wants everything. He wants everything because he's purchased everything. He's bought us with a price. We are not our own. We belong to him. And he has given us everything. He's granted us um, tremendous riches beyond compare that, that he will lavish and bestow upon us forevermore into eternity future. 
and for a little time, just a short number of days, God says, "Now, at this time, I want you to sacrifice yourself." And we know what that means.、Uh, I don't think we need to go uh, into uh, an in-depth discussion. What does it mean to sacrifice ourselves? We know what it means. It means when we get up in the morning, we pray to the Lord, "O、oh、Lord, what would you have me to do? What am I to do? You command me to feed sheep, and yet, what am I going to do today?" Well,、uh, in response, in obedience,、uh, if you love me, keep my commandments. Peter, lovest thou me? Yea, Lord, thou knowest I love thee. Feed my sheep. Each and every day, God is saying that to all of us. Lovest thou me, child of God? Yea, Lord, we respond. Thou knowest I love thee. Feed my sheep today. Feed my sheep. Do what you must do. Pray for wisdom. Yes.、Uh, ask me to guide you in that. Yes. But the command remains the same and has remained the same since May twenty-one, twenty eleven, throughout this entire period. Feed my sheep today. There, there is a great multitude of them out there. Don't leave it for、um, just one organization or one ministry. Don't leave it for a few people to do. You are the one I'm speaking to, really. As we read John twenty-one, that is the truth. God is speaking not to a few, but to all of His elect. Feed my sheep. Get involved. Do what you must do. Print out tracts. Pray for a blessing.、Uh, use your financial resources. Use your own time. Go on a track trip, or go stand on your local corner. But feed my sheep, and and that's what the Lord would have us to do. Well, here、uh, Psalm nine is inscribed to the chief musician, who is God,、uh, to die for the Son, to die for the Son, a Psalm of David, and the Psalms are songs, and David, yes, was a man who lived in history, who was blessed of God. And、uh, David was a saved man. We,、uh, the Bible has a great deal of information to tell us about him. But David also is a type and a figure of Christ. And the name David is a name of the Lord Jesus Christ, because David means beloved, and and Christ is the beloved, my、uh, my dearly beloved son. Okay, let's go to verse one of Psalm nine. I will praise thee, O Jehovah, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvelous works. I will praise thee, Jehovah, with my whole heart. And we、uh, can't help but notice the word "whole."、Uh, this is this is the problem with mankind.、Uh, they They do things. We、uh, we we even have、um, phrases, and 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 we we sort of know it's a negative thing to do something half-heartedly.、Uh, 
Um, how, how did he do that job when you hire him in? Oh, he, he works, but he does it half-heartedly. And, and remember in Ephesians, God says, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to man. That is, with the whole heart. Do it with all that is within you. Praise his holy name. With the the whole spirit. And the word whole means entire, complete. Um, it, it's used of the whole land or the whole congregation. It's used many times and it means all. The, the complete heart is what God is saying that... Um, here I will praise thee, O Jehovah, with my whole heart, not partially, uh, not a double-minded heart, not a heart that is in almost 100% agreement, you know, 99.9. No, it's the whole heart. We read in Psalm 111, beginning in verse 1. Praise ye Jehovah. I will praise Jehovah with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of Jehovah are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endureth forever. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. Jehovah is gracious and full of compassion." Now, I, I read the other verses about works because God also mentions works at the end of verse 1. Uh, I will praise thee, O Jehovah, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvelous works. And it's interesting when you look up the word marvelous works. It's a translation of one Hebrew word. It relates to God's judgment. For instance, when God um, brought judgment upon Egypt... He says in Exodus 3.20 that he smote Egypt with his wonders. And wonders is the same word, marvelous works. And references made to those marvelous works in Egypt in a few verses. So God's wrath, his judgment, is uh, related to his marvelous works. There's uh, many things that are part of God's marvelous works. The word, um, which is interesting, in Psalm 119, where God uh, says, uh, Open up thou mine eyes, that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. Well, wondrous things is is marvelous works. It's the same, uh, it's a translation of the same Hebrew word we have here. And, and so the uh, marvelous works of God are in the Bible. They're in the scriptures. They're the judgments of God. They're uh, information that, that um, for instance, he is opening up in the day of judgment concerning his righteous revelation of the judgment of God, his marvelous works of the judgment upon the world. But but let's go back to the whole heart, the whole heart. And, and let's turn to Psalm 119, Psalm 119. It says, um, beginning in verse 2, Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. 
They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. So here God um, says, Blessed are they that seek him with a whole heart. And we'll look at that, um, what that means exactly. But also look at verse 10. With my whole heart have I sought thee. O let me not wander from thy commandments. Verse 34 of Psalm 119. Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Verse 57 says, Thou art my portion, O Jehovah. I have said that I would keep thy words. Verse 58, I entreated thy favor with my whole heart. Be merciful unto me according to thy word. Psalm 69, The proud have forged the lie against me, but I will keep thy precepts with my whole heart. And in Psalm 119, precepts or testimonies or the commandments, they're all synonymous, synonyms representing the Word of God, the Bible. And the reference to whole heart is in keeping these precepts, keeping God's commandments with the whole heart. As it said in Psalm 119, verse 2, Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. And then in verse 3, they also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. That is, they do not transgress the law, the commandment, the statute, the precept. They do not uh, sin against God. That is what it is to to seek God with a whole heart, to maintain a perfect righteousness, to uh, maintain a perfect standard in regards to the law of God. Now, who does that? Well, of course, only the Lord Jesus Christ was able to do that, as he was a spotless lamb of God, and, and therefore he kept... God's law and statutes with the whole heart. And, and yet, when God saves the sinner that he has determined to save, one of his elect, which he did uh, save during the day of salvation, then God takes out his heart of stone, his evil heart of unbelief. He takes out that desperately wicked heart and gives him a new heart and a new spirit. As it says in Ezekiel chapter 36, in verse 26 and 27, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And and judgments and statutes, just like Psalm 119, are synonyms for the word of God, the Bible. So here God explains how it is that People have an ongoing desire to do the will of God and also an ability 
to perform the doing of it. You know, it's good to have that ongoing desire to do the will of God, but we should not think that there is no ability, that that there is no way that, that we can actually do it. You know, no one should be comforted in themselves and think, well, you know, I really want to do it God's way. I have an ongoing desire to feed the sheep, or I have an ongoing desire to keep this commandment, uh, to uh, be faithful in this way, to do things God's way in my life, but uh, I just can't do it. I, I just fail in everything. But as long as I have that desire, no, no. Notice what God says in Ezekiel 36, verse 27. After instilling that new heart, he says, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. The word do is a little word, but it's, it's saying a big thing. You will be able to perform the doing of it. That as God moves within his people to will and to do of his good pleasure. He has ordained for us works uh, to walk in. Remember in Ephesians, and what is a work? Well, first of all, of course, it it's not the work that justifies the sinner. No man is justified by works in the sight of God. Um, but that brings the condemnation. We're justified by the faith of Christ and not of works. Yet after salvation, after God has saved us through Christ's faith, he has ordained that works be performed. It says uh, here in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So let's get that out of the way. Here God is making it very plain, very explicit. Nobody is saved by their work. Not by one work or a thousand works. No man is justified in his sight through work of accepting Christ or of keeping any other law of God. It it says in Galatians 2.16, justified by the faith of Jesus. So God in Ephesians 2.9, first spells that out, not of works. And then he says in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Well, that's the language of Ezekiel 36.27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And and so a good work, the definition of a good work is to keep the commandment of God. To Abraham, it was take thy son Isaac, thine only son, and go to Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. 
to Isaiah the prophet, it was walk naked and barefoot for three years as a testimony uh, against them. And for all God's people, God gives commandments. And, and sometimes those commandments are specific to a certain um, period of time, a certain time and season in God's program. During the, uh, the end of the church age, uh, at, at the time of the Great Tribulation, God opened the scriptures to reveal a particular commandment that he issued and decreed was to be obeyed. Depart out of the midst of Judea. Flee to the mountains was the commandment of God. God's people who had received his spirit, a new heart and new spirit, and, and God through his indwelling spirit caused his people to obey that command and they came out of the churches and congregations of the world. And, and so God did it. God, God gets the glory, but his people perform the doing of it. There was a response. There was action taken in regards to the commandment of God. And, and, and that as well as many other commandments are, or were ordained of God that his people should walk in them. And for this time, going back to the command, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, three times indicating the purpose of God. This is the commandment. And the commandment, if you love me, keep my commandments. But the response, the action, is the good work that God has before ordained for his people to do. And, and so th- this is all related to that whole heart, to that new heart and new spirit that God has placed within his people. As we read in 1 John chapter 3 and in verse 9, Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. So, if you're born of God, you cannot commit sin in your new spirit, in your new heart, because you have a whole heart, and and every area of your new heart seeks to do the will of God, desires to do the will of God, and and God sees that heart, which is very different than the natural heart, the stony heart that the unsaved possess, they do not seek to do the will of God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There's rebellion in their heart. There's deceitfulness in their heart. There's sin in their heart, but not in the child of God's heart. Now, it doesn't mean we can say we're without sin because we still are living in physical bodies. We still have sin-cursed bodies of flesh that are corrupt, and and therefore we still sin. You know, as God says this, it's true of us. In 1 John, in verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, 
we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So uh, the child of God does not say we have no sin. Yes, we have sin. We still sin because we're, we're one whole personality or we're one person in body and soul. It just so happens the soul is perfect. We, we have a whole heart that does not sin, but we still have the flesh that commits sin. And, and, and so, uh, it's a dual nature. We possess the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And they're contrary the one to the other. And God says, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Well, we, we're growing in grace. We're, we're growing in the knowledge of God. God is helping us more and more as we live the Christian life. Sin, it says in Romans 6, shall not have dominion over you. Now, here we have a new heart and, and God's spirit indwelling us. Is there not power in that? Is there not the power of God there to help us against the flesh, against the physical body and its cravings and urgings and evil desirings? Of course there is. That's why God says, again in Romans 6, let let me turn back there. In Romans chapter 6, he says in verse 11, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. That's your flesh. That's where sin resides. Yes, it resides there, but it ought not reign. And what is it to reign? Well, to reign means to rule. To reign means sin issues the dictates to the rest of you. Sin in your mortal body is what governs you. If it reigns, sin is the one that tells you what to do. Sin is the one that you follow. Sin is the one you obey. And God says, no, no, no. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Well, what what are we to do? It goes on to say in verse 13, And following, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart 
that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. And God has saved his people, we know. God has given them all new hearts. God indwells all of his people, we know. Therefore, there is a power, the power of God's presence, the power of his spirit, residing, indwelling within the child of God, that we ought not serve and submit and obey sin, but rather God. And and isn't it true that we've done it quite enough already? Haven't we spent most of our life and, and, and years and years in service to sin? And what thanks is there for serving sin? What benefit have we received from paying homage to sin and bowing down before our own lusts and desires? What good thing has resulted from doing evil? And, oh, it's very attractive, and it's alluring, and, and, but what does it bring? What benefit? What help? What comfort? And the answer is none. We know it too. We know it. Why do service to sin any longer? Of course, uh, there, there can still be instances like David where we commit sin, but we we ought to be by God's grace through his power and the power of his spirit doing service to God righteous act unto righteous act and uh bringing the flesh um more and more into submission as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in verse 24 know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, and remember in the Bible to run, run the way of God's commandments, it says in Psalm 119, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. That is, I keep under the body, bring the body into subjection, to the commandments of God. Let the body know, uh, God is saying, that His Spirit is in charge. That the whole heart is what, um, by God's grace and granting us that new heart and spirit, is what governs. It is God that sits upon the throne and reigns within us. And it is God's commandments we seek to do and obey. Thanks for joining us for eBible Fellowship Sunday Bible Study. 
For more information or to hear additional Bible studies, be sure to visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com.